John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18, reading from the English Standard Version, today's message, an issue of authority. Verse 1, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So, there are different theories about what this feast was, but he's going back to Jerusalem now. Now, there is in Jerusalem, the sheep by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. You notice in your translation, there may or may not be a verse 4. We'll talk about that a little bit later. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Some people have speculated about the, the symbolism of the number 38. I'm not so sure there is any other than to give us the, the factual information. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now the day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who has been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said this to you? Take up your bed and walk. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found the man in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. There ends the reading of God's infallible word. You know, I think on one level it might be easy to be amused at the Pharisees and their legalism and their particularity, but we might be equally amused and amazed that we have had laws on the books in some states in this country, for all I know they may still be there, maybe some have been removed, that show an equal amount of occupation regarding the minute details of people's behavior. For example... At one time, at least, in Amarillo, Texas, it's against the law to take a bath on Main Street during banking hours. You can speculate about why they had that law there. In Portland, Oregon, it used to be or still is illegal to wear roller skates in public restrooms. And in Oglethorpe, Maryland, or Halethorpe, I'm not sure the name of the town, anyone kissing and the kiss lasting more than a second is an illegal action. So I think that goes to show that throughout history, people have tended to live more by the letter of the law than by the spirit of the law. Well, in today's scripture reading, we are again given visible evidence of what John said at the very beginning of this gospel. You notice we keep going back there. Those first five or ten verses of John chapter one pretty much summarize everything else that John is unpacking and unfolding throughout the rest of the book. Jesus came to his own people, and they did not receive him. Now, of course, that needs a little bit of qualification and elaboration because obviously the earliest followers of Jesus who did receive him were Jews. 
But once they had received him, once they had believed him, they ceased being Jews according to the Pharisees' definition. So there's a little bit of uh, clarification that needs to take place when it says his own did not receive him. Certainly the Pharisees did not receive receive him and all those who were hooked into their religion. So here we see these Pharisees living up to that charge. They didn't receive him. And true to form... They are more concerned about the minute details of their distortions of the law of God than they are about the Messiah, who is the author of the very law they claim to live by and love. And we're presented here a picture of both a miraculous healing and deep interpersonal conflict. But I think this episode highlights for us especially the issue of authority, sovereign authority. And I want to suggest to us this morning in the time remaining that it does so in the following two main areas. First of all, the authority of Christ over our lives. So we read that Jesus has returned to Jerusalem, where there is another feast taking place. Again, people have speculated about which feast it was. We're not told. But he goes to a part of the city known as the Sheep Gate. Uh, When you go to Jerusalem today, you can still see these ancient gates where in the old city... People would bring, come in from different places, and uh, the gate would get that name. In this case, this would have been the entrance to the city where the shepherds directed their livestock, where they were taking them to market for sale. And according to John, there was in those days a pool whose waters had healing or medicinal purposes. Now, <clears throat> if you're reading the King James Version or the New King James Version, You will see a reference there to this healing power being attributed to an angel coming down and stirring up the water. Now, some Bible scholars, and I think they're very good Bible scholars, say that this was actually a legend that had been added to the words of John's gospel years after it was written. You know, sometimes when you have people copying documents, and let's put this out there for people who don't know, We don't have any of the original manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. What we have are copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies, and on and on. And when you have that much copying and circulating going on, things are bound to creep into the text that weren't there at the very beginning. And so, the scholars who say this theorize, and I think it's on good grounds, that some monk or whoever was copying this text out in the margin of the text, wrote a comment that this was the story about why the waters would start stirring up. And over time, that that comment found its way actually into the text of John's gospel. That's why if you have the ESV or the NIV translation, you will see that the text goes from verse 3 to verse 5, and you'll find verse 4 footnoted or with an asterisk with some sort of explanation like that. I'm not going to get any more detail about that than I am here. If you want to talk about it, see me later. But for us, what is happening here is simply this. There's a pool of water that is in reality probably a hot spring or a mineral bath. You know, people from all over the world have used those kind of baths for healing and convalescent purposes. Um, My wife and I, for 18 years, lived near a place called Saratoga Springs, New York. And the springs in that title of that town had to do with these kinds of mineral uh, waters that people would go to, they would flock to, and people still do that today up there. They'll take, you know, milk, empty milk jugs and fill it up with this mineral water, which is readily available in that place. 
Well, that's why all of those sick and lame people had gathered about that pool and waited for it to bubble up. There was something bubbling up. Now, the legend was it was an angel doing it. More likely, it's this mineral water uh, or hot, hot uh, spring bubbling up from the bottom. And some of them probably did recover from illness. But the legend was that the angel would go down and stir it up, and then further, that the first person into the water after the angel had stirred it up, that person would be healed. And so here we meet this poor man who's been sick with some kind of ailment for 38 years. We don't know what his handicap was. We don't know how many years he'd been trying to be the first man into that water. But we can guess this illness prevented him from moving about by himself. And verse 3 tells us that the man was certainly not alone. It says a great multitude of sick people had gathered at that place every day. And that means more than just two or three. It was a large number of people who gathered there. And look at what the Lord does. He chooses that man out of all the rest who had come. Why? Why do you suppose the Lord chose him? Well, verse 6 says that the Lord Jesus was aware that the man had been disabled for a long time. But we don't know how the Lord knew it. Someone may have told him. He may have known it by divine insight. It may have been a combination of both. But remember, that man was one of a large multitude, many of whom probably had similarly sad stories. So why that man out of all that crowd? Well, the Lord simply decided to choose that man. We don't know why. And the answer that it was the Lord's decision, well, that ought to be enough for us. Because he is God and we are not. And notice how having made the choice of that man over all of the others, Jesus puts this rather unusual question to him. Do you want to be made well? And you would think it was a foregone conclusion, a certainty that the man would be made, want to be made well. I mean, after all, he's been coming to that pool for day in and day out for who knows how long. Why bother to ask him a question with such an obviously self-evident answer? I think that Jesus was trying to drive home a point to the man and through him to us. And I think the point that he makes to him is this. That very thing that your heart desires, the thing that that man longed for the most in the utmost recesses of his being, that is the very thing that he and you and I are powerless to accomplish. And the man told Jesus as much in his reply to him. And my guess is, and that's all it is, speculation, that this reply was that of a bitter, grumbling old man who probably thought this stranger must have been out of his mind for asking him such a question. In verse 8, though, you see there that Jesus is no longer asking questions. He's giving a command. Look at what he says to him. He says, get up, take up your bed, and walk around. Now, telling a crippled man, a lame man, to do such a thing, well, that's about like telling an old, old man that he must become born again, isn't it? So we see a clarification here, don't we? Just as Nicodemus, so too with this man by the pool of Bethesda. The sovereign power of God is being contrasted with the weakness and utter inability of humans to save themselves, to redeem themselves, to heal themselves. Just as Nicodemus was powerless to cause himself to be reborn spiritually, so too is that man now powerless to heal himself physically. 
And all of the mineral waters in the world are not going to solve his problem. Only Christ the Lord could do that. Because Jesus Christ is sovereign authority over all of life. He claims authority over our physical lives and over our spiritual lives. So are you, are we waiting for someone to come along and pick us up and throw us into the pool of the world's ways of healing? Or are we willing to say to the Son of God alone, yes, I, we want to be made well. Now the second thing concerning this issue of authority is the authority of Christ over our world. Our world. Jesus demonstrates in this encounter with the Pharisees that it is not just the spiritual light that he claims is his own, it is the whole of creation. Now notice in verse 9 what happens when the Pharisees meet this man walking about with his bed. What's the very first thing that they notice? Is it that he had been healed and walking around for the first time in almost four decades? Nope, not at all. They want to know why he's carrying his bed around on the Sabbath day. They're so occupied with their rules and their regulations that they're totally callous to the reality of what has happened to that man. And here is a perfect example of how those Pharisees have taken a legitimate law of God and distorted it. We talked about this some last Sunday, if you recall. God has indeed given a law regarding the Sabbath, and it was given so that both human beings and the earth that he created might have rest from labor and work. It is a law that comes from the very creation itself, by God. But it is obvious when you read the law as given by the Lord through Moses, that the rest that one is to take on the Sabbath is a rest from the labor that we commonly do during the week. And certainly carrying around your bed after you've been healed for th- being sick for 38 years, that's not in that category. So those Pharisees have crossed the boundary once again of God's law into the mean-spirited world of legalism and, frankly, paganism. You know, a legalist is someone who seeks to please God merely by the outward keeping of rules and regulations. That is, outwardly conforming to some standard, while inwardly they are as wicked and as sinful as the worst murderer or thief. Now let me ask you a question. Most of us in this room have read and heard this story of the pool at Bethesda many times. And all the times that you've read or heard this story from the life of Jesus, have you ever thought about this? that Jesus specifically told that man to rise up and take his bed and walk around. You know, he could have just as easily told him, go walk around, or he could have just as easily said, get up and walk around, leave your bed here, I want everybody to see you can walk. But he told him pointedly and specifically to take that bed, that mat, with him, and I think it's very clear why the Lord did that, because he knew the Pharisees quite well. And he wanted to show how truly wicked they were, and brother, did they ever prove him right. In verse 14, we see there that someone later, uh, sometime later, excuse me, Jesus meets up with that man again, the healed man in the temple, and he tells him something that he had not said before. He says, see, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. So there are two things that we should note well here in that comment. First of all, notice that Jesus' merciful grace is accompanied by the command not to sin. You know, when we come to chapters 7 and 8, we will read another famous story, 
the story of the woman who's been caught in adultery, and we'll see a similar thing take place. The point is, Jesus is ready to forgive, but his forgiveness is not without cost and responsibility. The forgiveness that he offers will cost him his life. And the responsibility that forgiveness brings is that we are to refrain from sinning. But then secondly, apparently the man Jesus healed had become sick as a result of some sinful behavior. Now that's speculation. I think it's reasonable speculation. We're not told what that behavior was. But whatever it was, Jesus warns him, warns him that if he don't, doesn't stop it, something far worse may happen to him. And that something far worse probably has reference both to physical illness and also the state of his soul. Now here in verse 15, we see that the crippled man went and told the Jews that it was now, I realized, it was this man Jesus who healed me and told him to take up his bed and walk around on the Sabbath. Now, it's easy to jump to the conclusion that this guy is ungrateful and he's a backstabber trying to get Jesus in trouble, but there's something we need to keep in mind here. Someone charged with Sabbath breaking in that time and place was in a lot of trouble. That man was liable to have been stoned to death if proved guilty. It's understandable that he would therefore tell the Pharisees that he was, according to their rules anyway, innocent of this crime since someone else had put him up to it. And remember, too, that Jesus probably wanted this encounter with those Pharisees. In verse 16, we learn that they were angry enough at Jesus because he dared command someone to break their laws. But then he goes a step further, and he makes a statement that sent them completely over the edge. Look at what he says in verse 17 as the reason he's done this. And this has puzzled many people. It's, it's a challenging statement to understand. And if I remember what I read in my commentary research, this is the only place something like this in all the stories of Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees takes place. He says, my father is working until now, and I am working. So why did they become so upset by that? Well, what this means is that the traditions of the Pharisees, they held that men were required properly to refrain from all kinds of work on the Sabbath but that God himself, obviously, was not bound by that law, and it's obvious why he wasn't. Because if God stopped working, then everything in creation would come to a grinding halt. And that is what Jesus is alluding to here, where he reminds them that God the Father works on the Sabbath. And in saying that, he wasn't telling them anything that they didn't already know. But what he was telling them that they didn't already know was and believe was this that he and his Father are one. God the Father and Jesus, no less than his Father, works on the Sabbath. And that means, in plain language, that Jesus is claiming to be God in human flesh. And verse 18 spells that out very clearly. Jesus is claiming to be equal with God, and that means he's thereby claiming the authority over the Sabbath and therefore all creation. The Sabbath rest was a part of the original creation of the earth. God gave this law to rest from our labors as a blessing to bless us and to benefit us and the creation, the world we live in. I remember very vividly when I was a student at Westminster Theological Seminary, I had the privilege of being in a class taught by Professor Bruce Walkey, one of the preeminent Old Testament scholars in Protestant Reformed theology. And before he came to Westminster, Dr. Walkey taught 
at other seminaries, including Dallas Theological Seminary many years earlier. And in our class, he told the story about when he lived in Texas. He made the acquaintance of a man who was a big-time rancher. He had cattle. He had a big, big farm. But that man, Dr. Walkie said, was no respecter of the Sabbath rest. And that he worked his animals and his livestock seven days a week. And my teacher, Dr. Walkie, commented how he noticed the worn out and deflated appearances of those animals whenever he would visit that man's farm. They were not allowed the rest that God decreed for man, but which had also definite consequences for all of the creation as well. So the Pharisees had taken that law and turned it into a hammer with which they could smash anybody who didn't toe the line of their self-inflated righteousness. And Jesus himself, the Son of the living God, has called their hand. He has shown everyone who had eyes to see and ears to hear how corrupt and wicked those men were. And he's done that by asserting his godly authority over the Sabbath itself. And that we see that Christ who claims authority over our lives, also claims authority over the world. You know, we think of this as our world, but really it is his world. This is God's world, not ours. He has put us into it to glorify him, as our catechism teaches us, and, and enjoy him forever. But the Bible tells us that but for his grace and mercy, none of us is capable of glorifying and honoring him anywhere. That is why the Lord comes to us in this world and restores us to fellowship with himself and raises us up and sets us on our feet and tells us, you go and sin no more. But he doesn't leave us to try and obey that command purely by our own willpower. The Lord knows us well enough that if it were left to us, that none of us would be able to go and sin no more. But when we become Christians, when we are given that age-enduring life, Zoe Ionians. He also gives us a new set of rules to live our lives by. And he also gives us the power of his spirit so that we will be enabled to actually live in obedience to him. It's not perfect, but nevertheless, we walk in obedience by the sanctifying power of God's spirit. Now, it is a strange thing, but there are those who are not pleased with the fact that the Bible's message that it is God who has all authority over life and creation. And this is especially true when it comes to giving God all the glory when we talk about actually becoming a Christian. Now, I told this story some years ago. I think it bears repeating here. It's about a man who was asked to share his testimony of salvation at one of these church Bible studies. It was one of those, you know, Armenian fundamentalist-type churches, a prayer meeting. And the man got up and he told of how God sought him and found him. He said God loved him and called him and saved him and delivered him and cleansed him and healed him. It was a tremendous testimony of the glory of God's power. But after that meeting, one rather Arminian-saturated brother, I'll call him that, came up to this man and, and calling him aside, he said, You know, uh, I really do appreciate all of what you said about what God did for you, but you didn't mention anything about your part in it. Salvation is really part us and part God. God has his part in it, and man has his part in it too. You should have said something about your part in becoming saved. To which the man thought and replied, Oh, I am indeed sorry about that. You're quite right. I really should have mentioned that my part was running away. God's part was running after me 
until he found me. I close this message by asking each of us, who do we honor as the authority over our lives? Who is it that we respect and reverence as the authority over all of creation, over this earth? And who is it, finally, that we give the credit to for redeeming us and giving us new life? By God's grace, let us confess truly, it is Christ Jesus and Him alone. Let us pray.